Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and as always, I thank all of you for being with us for today's show, a show which I have to tell you, um, I know that Natalie Mendenhall, Chase McGee, and I have all been looking forward to since we first uh, decided to put the show together for some uh, time now. Um, And let me introduce it this way. I, I think virtually everyone knows by now that in February, the Carter family announced that President Carter had made the decision to forego any further medical treatments for whatever his physical conditions might be and had decided it was time to go into hospice at the family home in Plains. Uh, And then just a few months later, in April, the uh, uh, family announced this, quote, the Carter family is sharing that former First Lady Rosalind Carter has dementia. She continues to live happily at home with her husband, enjoying spring in plains and visits with loved ones. That statement actually comes from uh, the Carter Center, rather, not uh, the family. Um, And we're going to talk today about the extraordinary legacy of Rosalind Carter in the areas of mental health and also in caregiving. I, I think one of the things that's so extraordinary is that Uh, President and Mrs. Carter have been equal partners for their entire lives in dealing with causes that um, are passionate uh, causes for each of them. And in Mrs. Carter's case, mental health and caregiving has something she's devoted more than 50 years to dealing with. And so there is a certain irony to the fact that she herself is now struggling with dementia. So let's get right to it. Um, I want to introduce our panel, starting with Paige Alexander, who is the CEO of the Carter Center. Paige, thank you very much. You've done the show before, and we're very happy to have you back now. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here, Bill. Thanks so much for covering this issue. We're also joined by Dr. Jennifer Olson, who is the CEO of the Rosalind Carter Institute of caregivers. Jennifer, um, I said before the show, we're kind of informal here, so thank you for allowing me to call you Jennifer instead of doctor. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And we're also joined by GPB senior healthcare reporter, Ellen Eldridge. And Ellen, uh, we're we're having you on the show, among other reasons. Uh, You cover mental health issues, but also because you yourself were the beneficiary of a mental health journalism fellowship that the Carter Center has uh, offered for some time now. And at some point today, we're going to want to ask you to talk about what that was like. Um, But thanks for being here today, Ellen. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, Paige, if you don't mind, I'd like to start by... um, uh, asking you, I know that the family is concerned about uh, its its privacy, and that makes perfect sense. But to what extent can you give us just a little uh, insight about how life is for uh, Mr. and Mrs. President and Mrs. Carter in Plains right now? Well, uh, <clears throat> Jennifer also lives in Plains, so she can talk about the the town buzz. But you know, at the end of the day. The reality is they just want to be together and they want to be at home in Plains. And so they have that now. And that's where they've spent the majority of COVID. And having that time together at this stage in their life is really important. And so uh, Jason Carter, the chair of our board and President Carter's oldest grandson, has recently talked about the fact that we've known President Carter's been eating ice cream literally every day, and he is comfortable. <laughs> and uh, Mrs. Carter, who has always been very careful about his diet, I think they're just enjoying sort of this stage and being together. So, 
It's uh, aging gracefully is not an easy thing to do, as we all know. And it's nice that we can see them doing that and that they've got each other. And Jennifer, it is so extraordinarily lovely that they are together and in this stage of their lives. Yes, so many of the times we talk to families um, and caregivers, and the first question always has to be, what matters the most? You know, what's so beautiful about President and Mrs. Carter is that they have said that that time together is what they value, and they're able to spend that time together now. Um, I think that's a great question for all of us to think about as we age, each of us ages, what's going to matter to you the most in the final chapters? So, um, there's really kind of two components of what Mrs. Carter has done over the years in terms of mental health uh, uh, and in terms of caregiving, and they work together clearly. Um, I, if, if Jennifer, I think what we should do is start by looking at Mrs. Carter and her commitment to trying to uh, bring to light the issues that caregivers face um, and how she and you now at the Institute have worked to uh, support those efforts out there. And there's a famous quote uh, about Mrs. that Mrs. Carter has um, uh, uh, used in the past. There are only four kinds of people in the world, those who have been, have been caregivers, those who are currently caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. Um, and, and, and I think that quote is very important, but I also like the quote that comes from the Institute, which is that um, you say that although caregiving will likely affect all of us at some point in our lives, many caregivers do not identify as caregivers. Too often we hear caregivers describe themselves as just a daughter, husband, friend, or neighbor. And you go on from there to make the point that we need to elevate our understanding of what it means, the difficulties of being a caregiver. So with that in mind, Mrs. Carter became a caregiver when she was quite young. That's right. At the age of 12, uh, she was first exposed to caregiving when her own father was sick with cancer. And she watched how that care experience impacted her mom, who was both caring for the rest of the family, working uh, to bring in resources uh, and trying to deal with all of the complexity of, uh, of the care journey. And so I often think about how uh, Mrs. Carter has been thinking about and exposed to caregiving for now 80 plus years um, and has seen that over time we have recognized the number of caregivers is growing, um, but our supports and services has not in any way matched that growth. Uh, and one of the things that we all need to think about with that four kinds quote is that caregivers experience both physical and mental health impacts, negative impacts uh, at higher rates than their non-caregiving peers. So this includes some of the things you would commonly think about uh, depression and anxiety or substance use. It would include things like caregivers who are often um, not taking care of themselves, right? Missing that annual doctor's appointment because they are taking their care, person they're caring for somewhere. And so, so much of uh, the work that Mrs. Carter has done has been at that intersection of, of mental health and caregiving uh, and recognizing that these two things are so intertwined, as she saw in her own family experience and listening to people from the governor's mansion to the White House. Ellen, um, it, it, we'll, we'll talk about those things as intertwined, mental health issues and caregiving. But uh, to pick up on what Jennifer said, the Institute says that Currently, 53 million Americans are serving as caregivers to someone in their family who's aging, ill, or disabled. That is a remarkable number, and it's a sort of an invisible number. We don't think of that as a group of people out there. Yeah, and that number's going up um, with, with COVID and all, all the deaths. You know, we've got grandparents raising raising their grandkids now because of overdose deaths. All these things are coming to a head. We don't even have the data yet for all that. I, I just spoke with a, a researcher associated with RCI who is doing studies about the connection between grief and binge drinking. You know, these, these caregivers are, are doing what they can to get through their different situations and, you know, not taking care of yourself, just like Jennifer said, missing doctor's appointments. These these things are going to get worse. 
Um, Paige, so again, mental illness is all a part of this. So let me go to that element. Uh, There's a story that in around 1970, I think when when Jimmy Carter was campaigning for governor, uh, Mrs. Carter ended up talking to someone uh, who was coming out of work, I think, at a location where he was shaking hands. And that person talked about with her the mental health issues that were uh, happening in the family at that time. And for some reason, it resonated deeply with her very quickly and started her on this path uh, where she worked on a variety of things, including destigmatizing uh, the issue of mental uh, health, um, making sure there were insurance paid for mental health on par with what it paid for physical health, and equal access to mental health services. Not all of that has been achieved, but it started many years ago. Absolutely. And you know, one of one of the issues that the Carter Center has always looked at, because when President and Mrs. Carter started this adventure of the Carter Center 40 years ago, is when they, they would travel overseas, they were seeing people in villages throughout the world that looked a lot like the village they came from in Plains. And so Mrs. Carter used to talk about how when she was on the campaign trail and she was at, you know outside she was learning things on the trail that were relevant to what she had seen in Plains. She had seen people with mental illness get picked up on the street corner in Plains and put in the back of a paddy wagon. And she never quite understood if what the person had done wrong or... And so her knowledge and her education about what people were struggling with and how those issues could be addressed came from her time getting outside the you know the bubble of planes but at the same time taking all of what she learned in planes on the road with her and i think that you know embracing the fact that that as jennifer was talking about and ellen navigating advocating and coordinating someone's mental health needs and someone's caregiving needs it's a full-time job and she knew that from when she was 12 years old all the way through you know, the announcement with President Carter in hospice, she has seen that. She's seen that in her family, and she knows that other Americans have seen it in their families. So this is an important element of her taking lessons that she learned over her lifetime and figuring out where she could make a difference. And hence the mental health program and the Rosalind Carter Fellowship program that Ellen was part of and RCI, the setting up of these institutions are really what we're here to carry on. Jennifer, what does it mean uh, when we talk about the stigma around mental health, which we know still exists today and is one of the major issues that Mrs. Carter wanted to address throughout her life? Well, I think uh, I often think about the stigma experiences uh, within caregiver categories. You know, um, when somebody is trying to tell their coworkers or their friends that they're caring for someone, There's a different conversation when that's a cancer diagnosis or a car accident as compared to TBI or substance use. So stigma impacts the person who is struggling themselves and it impacts the caregiver because I then don't want to seek out help and I don't want to engage others. Uh, I consider that like the double stigma, the person who is in the caregiver role for a condition that we don't discuss. Um, And that is incredibly isolating. There's so much work to do there. You know, we're uh, in some ways judging the diagnosis of someone and their caregiver uh, and then deciding what they should be served with and supported with. What is TBI? Help our audience understand that term. Uh, Traumatic brain injury. So you think about our, especially veterans. Yeah. Ellen? Hi. Yes. <laughs> um, so one of the things that that I like best about the whole caregiving journey is that Mrs. Carter really listened to the people. She really listened to the constituents and and that informed her own passion, I think, for for the mental health journey of, of different people. And of course, she saw herself in it, you know, having been a caregiver since the age of 12 and and lost people. And, you know, I mean, she, she was just honestly and genuinely passionate about it. Um, so let's go back in her career and look at um, some of the things that she uh, accomplished starting in the early 70s. Um, 
it, she was initially a member of the Governor's Commission to Improve Service for Mentally and Emotionally Handicapped Georgians that was created by her husband, uh, Jimmy, as governor of Georgia. And um, so this goes back a very, very long way. And w- what's interesting about that page is that um, although she was able to make some progress in the state of Georgia, uh, we know that as recently as just one session ago, the year before this past session, that that legislators really decided to take seriously the uh, fact that Georgia was uh, really struggling to catch up to the rest of the country in terms of mental health services. Yeah, you know, it, given that uh, political rewind, I think it's probably also important to point out the fact that Mrs. Carter always understood the power of being bipartisan. She did it in the governor's mansion in 1979 in the White House and later with Betty Ford advocating on mental health and substance use disorders and women's rights. And as you said, as recently as last year when she publicly supported the late Speaker Ralston for introducing the historic Georgia Mental Health Parity Act. And I think that that is indicative of her reaching across the aisle and recognizing the parity that if you break your leg, you insurance will cover it. But what happens if you have a mental health crisis? And if nothing else during COVID, we've certainly seen so many families suffer and struggle with how to get the the attention that they need and the resources. And, and um, this is, again, a lasting legacy for her. Jennifer, um, we're doing better in the state of Georgia in terms of mental health services and parity, but it's we are still we still need to catch up. And I don't want to engage you in the political uh, partisan political discussion, but I think it is fair to say that in the most recent session of the legislature, unfortunately, efforts to add to what was accomplished previous session, um, they they didn't get anywhere because the Senate decided not to take up the issue. So where do we stand right now with mental health services in the state? I think that's something probably Paige and Ellen can speak more effectively too. But I think that the real point here is, this is a great reminder that Mrs. Carter works on things for decades. You know, she recognizes and has the patience and the commitment to realize some years are gonna be progress and some years are definitely not. And sometimes progress might feel incredibly slow. Ellen? Yeah, I, I just wanted to to really kind of go over, I take pride in the fact that I was born when Jimmy Carter was president, but I know that <laughs> Mrs. Carter, and I mean, our lives kind of paralleled, at least in some ways, you know, just as I was about to turn one, she was testifying before Congress for the Mental Health Systems Act that was signed into law in 1980. Uh, and then by the time I was finishing high school, she had launched this mental health journalism fellowship, which while I didn't know about it at the time, you know, I, I went on to study psychology and get a bachelor's degree before coming to journalism. And as soon as I found out about the fellowship and the work and the network and the training, this was a career highlight for me. I mean, I, I applied three times to be a fellow. And and one of the things that really made a difference, I know that Mrs. Carter had gone before setting up the fellowship to try and talk to Hollywood writers and producers to reduce that stigma, you know, what we're seeing in, in movies and all. And I can only imagine how that went. So she she went to reaching out to journalists and the training and the framing of journalism as a solutions-based thing is what I've taken the most from the fellowship. Because when you're talking about those bipartisan legislation and, and, you know, everybody agrees that people with substance use disorder and mental illness deserve to be helped. But then when you get into the nitty gritty of funding it, that's, that's where we kind of see the cracks in the system, if you will. Ellen, talk to us a little bit, as long as you mentioned it, about the fellowship and what you were exposed to, what you got out of it. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing, my cohort was, if not the first, the second to go through during the pandemic. So I I was really disappointed in the fact that I wouldn't get to be in person with a lot of the different fellows and the people working with the Carter Center. But it's, it's invaluable. Even to this day, I'm still being invited to the trainings and the information, you know, everything from how I can deal with my own mental health as a reporter covering other people's traumas 
all the way down to how I can present the solutions that the experts and the advocates are giving people like Mrs. Carter. And Je- and Jennifer, the fellowship is available. It, it, it's not just here in the United States. You, you, you've r- brought in uh, journalists from other countries as well. Yes. Yes, uh, and the we have had over 250 journalists since 1996, and I would say, you know, Ellen, it, it, it's an incredibly complex issue, and Ellen has done an amazing job at reporting on it, and that has been such an important part of being able to expand this, not just as a U.S. issue, but as an issue that we take overseas. We're in Qatar, we're in UAE, Latin America, Ireland. Uh, we've had journalists from everywhere. Ellen? Yeah, and I just wanted to say also, you know, you don't have to be a healthcare reporter to apply for this fellowship. It's training that would inform almost any reporter's work, especially, you know, political, whatever. And just taking away, I mean, I was able to mentor with Pulitzer Prize winning journalists, you know, and that doesn't go away. I still know these people. I still have people I can reach out to if I'm working on a story. Even other fellows, there's 200 of us I can reach out to. I can look at their work, retweet it and inform my own reporting what the important issues are. Um, That's just one of the programs that the Institute offers. Jennifer, um, I, I think it's really important that before we go down the road too much further, you give us a look at what are some of the other major uh, programs, initiatives that you work on at the Rosalind Carter Institute. Well, I can't take credit for the journalism program. That's definitely the Carter Center, but maybe one day we at the Institute will have a caregiver journalism fellowship. Who knows? Oh, okay. Um, okay. Thank you yeah. for that. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. No, so I'm just I'm going to put it out into the universe because you never know, um, and maybe Ellen would help us with that one day. Um, but uh, you know we have a number of programs that are about direct services to caregivers, so training and coaching. Um, you know we have a number of programs for caregivers of those with dementia. I mentioned we've done a lot of work with the military and veteran caregiver community, um, the intellectual and developmental disabilities community. You know, one of the experiences over 35 years is I think we've had kind of a variety of care supports that we've been able to create, um, whether it's small groups or on Zoom, in person. Uh, And these programs are focused on a few key principles. One is problem solving, because if you're a caregiver, most of what you're doing is solving problems, whether that's insurance or complexity of appointments or finding the right home care worker who your loved one can get along with. Um, And so problem solving, self-care, because caregivers do need to make sure they're taking care of themselves. It's a bit like that uh, airplane announcement. You know, you're supposed to put on your mask before helping others. And so that's an important skill to learn. um, And we work with caregivers on that, as well as communication. There's constantly challenges between communicating with the healthcare system and clinicians, as well as communicating within your own family network, because so many care challenges are tied to complicated family dynamics. Um, I, I Thank you for clarifying. I did not know the fellowship was part of the Carter Center, not uh, the uh, uh, Institute. That's why I just talk for a living and I have people like you on to help me get things right. Paige, you want to jump in? <laughs> Yeah, I, I'll say, you know, the the work at the Carter Center that Mrs. Carter started for our mental health program involves these three areas. It's the Rosalind Carter uh, Mental Health Journalist Fellows, of which Ellen has been talking about. It's our global policy work, and we have created in Liberia, for, an exa- for example, they had no mental health care professionals. When we came in, they had three, and they were all about to retire. So we now have this huge cadre in Liberia, courtesy of the president, inviting us in and saying, this is an issue, and especially post-Ebola, these are issues that uh, we're doing pre-service and in-service training and all of the work uh, on our global policy work. And then in Georgia and in the U.S., the school-based behavioral health programs that are necessary. And again, it's sort of post-COVID, that has been in many ways the biggest gift to the message to destigmatize what Mrs. Carter wanted. So people are talking about this now. And as Jennifer was rightly saying, when someone says they have to take time off because they're caregiving, there's a stigma related to that. 
But then what are you caregiving? It's different if you're caregiving someone who's just you know broken a leg and can't get around than someone who's really having a traumatic issue at home that is a mental health crisis. And being able to wrap those together is a really important element of what Mrs. Carter wanted to make sure we were talking about. Uh, I want to unpack some of what you said. I've got to get to a break. But one of the things I'm really interested in is your what you just said about working in schools post-COVID. I'd like to know more about uh, that issue that you're dealing with. We'll get to that more, but let's pause first for these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're talking today on Political Rewind about the lifelong work of Rosalind Carter in terms of mental health issues and caregiving. And our guests on the show are Dr. Jennifer Olson, who is the CEO of the Rosalind Carter Institute of Caregivers for Caregivers, Paige Alexander, CEO of the Carter Center, and GPB senior health reporter Ellen Eldridge, who was a mental health journalism fellow at the Carter Center uh, and uh, tells us uh, in the last segment, gained enormous experience and understanding of issues around mental health and caregiving. Um, Paige, uh, before the break, you mentioned that one of the things that uh, you were now engaged with was working in schools um, to deal with uh, the post-COVID environment of what people, their kids, are dealing with. Help us understand that a little more. Sure. You know, we, we've we worked in partnership with the Georgia Appleseed Center for Law and Justice and Voices for Georgia's Children to lead collaborative of state agencies and advocacy organizations and academic institutions and local groups to talk about the strategic collective effort needed to strengthen and expand school-based behavioral health. And that's prevention, early intervention, and services. You know, our goal is that this school-based behavioral health program would be as common in Georgia schools as the provision of school and lunch, and that Georgia could be the preeminent state in, uh, in the school-based behavioral health work. You know, it's we need to optimize these limited resources. And that is one of the areas that we're looking into. We are not in there, but we we are not in there as providing the assistance. We're in there as advocating for the policy around mm-hmm. it. Right, right. Ellen? Yeah, my entire fellowship project was about school-based behavioral health in Georgia and how, you know, it's it, people don't go into education to become mental health counselors. But the fact remains that teachers and school staff and principals, they're around the kids eight hours a day. They're in a perfect position to just kind of evaluate the changes in kids or or the potential needs of kids who struggled through the pandemic. Or, you know, maybe they lost somebody and a teacher knows that Johnny lost his mom and, and maybe needs to be connected to the school counselor. And, uh, you know, bipartisan, I, I, I believe the governor's office has funded and will continue to fund more counselors in schools, peer programs, things of that nature. It's just that it's such an uphill climb right now to meet these kids' needs. You know, high school students, suicide rates are going up. A lot of these students have taken it on themselves to raise awareness and reduce stigma and encourage their friends to speak to somebody about their mental health. Um, You know, and, and I did some reporting about when they don't have these needs met, they, you know, they leave the public education system, and if their needs aren't met, more often than not, they end up in the criminal justice system. Um, so, Paige, uh, uh, when you deal with issues like that, um, how are you engaging at the Carter Center? In other words, in what way? You're on, not in the schools yourself, but you're uh, working to get other organizations, other individuals involved. Is that how it works? 
Yeah, we act as a convening power. I mean, the benefit of the Carter Center is that we can bring people together to have these conversations. And, you know, from several years ago, there was a Department of Justice finding against uh, the Department of Health and Human Services. And we were part of the convening because, you know, I would say we're agnostic on most issues, but everyone recognizes the need here, but we're not there advocating that you have to put this money in the budget. It has to be for this particular program. It's how can we bring the people together so the school administrators are able to have a voice with the policymakers to talk about what the needs are. And so that's the role that the Carter Center plays. So I recognize I'm going back and forth kind of between the Carter Center's mental health work and Jennifer, your work at uh, the Institute of Care for Caregivers. At, and uh, I apologize uh, to the listener, but I, but I want to make sure I cover all of this. So Jennifer, let me turn to something else. Uh, it's an issue that you're involved with uh, at the Institute, and that is um, dealing with the needs of military families. What kind of issues do military families face when it comes to caregiving? I think a lot of it are the issues of stigma. You know, uh, when I talk to military caregivers, they often describe to me the challenge of what they call the cancer casserole. It's that if somebody in your neighborhood um, receives a diagnosis of uh, cancer or something similar, a meal train is set up, maybe people offer, you know, send flowers, all these kinds of, I'm going to call them kind of like social activities, you know, Hallmark cards get brought over, all of that happens. And there's kind of a engagement that continues. Um, but sometimes if you're caring for someone with uh, post-traumatic stress issues or what is considered an invisible wound of the war, you may not be able to have that same uh, visibility with your neighbors. Um, you may not want to expose those details or you may not feel comfortable. And your own social experiences may have to be adapted. You know, if your uh, household has a person who is struggling with traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress issues, you may not be able to go to the community picnic or to the fair or the carnival in the same ways as your neighbors might. So you're further isolating. That's incredibly challenging. And military families have often had to move multiple times year after year. So their network um, that might exist uh, is fragmented. And what caregivers often need is someone nearby to provide support or just a conversation or just sit with that person. Um, and so I think that a lot of the challenges are exacerbated. One thing we're looking at at the Institute is that military caregivers, especially post 9-11 military caregivers are now entering in some cases their 20th plus year of being a caregiver. Now think about that. We often think about caregiving as a acute or discreet experience, but this is a place where we think there's an opportunity to learn you know, think about our um, caregivers of those with intellectual or developmental disabilities. They're in that role for decades. How can some of the ways that they have determined to cope and deal with their own aging be applied to some of these other military populations? Um, and so, again, the challenges are complex, but they are, um, there are opportunities there to learn across and between populations. And as I say, for anybody, any caregiver in your life, check on the caregiver today. When this show ends after you're done listening, that would be the number one thing I would encourage you to do. What does that mean? A text, an email that says you don't need to respond. Or when I get my most intense, I say, be more aggressive. Say you're going to the grocery store and you're going to get, you know, a lasagna, a frozen lasagna. If that person can't eat lasagna, they'll tell you. But tell them you're going to get them <laughs> something. Um the reason I say that, and that feels like a bit of an aggressive thing, is often when somebody says they're a caregiver, the other person's response is to say, oh, how can I help you? Now, think about that. You've just assigned the caregiver to come up with a way Another to chore. build a task list, <laughs> to figure out, like, what task can I give you? How are you going to be able to do it? But, you know, like, why would you do that? So think about it as what can you proactively do for a caregiver? So let me uh, um, uh, add another layer to your work with military. Um, you partnered with the Wounded Warrior uh, Project, and um, among other things, uh, there are peer support groups that um, are offered so that caregivers can get together and discuss their their issues um, and hopefully get some 
support from each other. But so what we're talking about here, I assume, is the spouse of someone perhaps returning from active service, maybe with PTSD, maybe with a traumatic injury of, of some sort, with the loss of a limb, with recovering. All of these are things, and often it is the spouse, I assume, who's on the first line of caregiving. Uh, the spouse, a parent, you know, a parent whose son or daughter went off to military service at the age of 18, who comes back uh, with an injury. You know, I think there's a lot of a neighbor, um, you know, someone who served with the military member. So again, the care experience can be really diverse who you're caring for. Um, it can be the person you're divorced from. I think there's like our, our minds are kind of set up to believe these like um, images of, oh, it's the spouse, the older person taking care of their older husband or wife. That's not true. You know, caregivers vary in age and experience. Um, some teenagers are caregivers, as we saw in Mrs. Carter's own experience. All right. So l- let me take another step and continue this conversation and deal specifically with what Mrs. Carter is now struggling with. This this brings us to talking both about the Carter Center's work as well as what you're doing at the Caregiving Institute. Um, what it, who wants to take a stab at, Ellen? What is dementia? Yeah, dementia is more than just Alzheimer's. Uh, it's a, an umbrella of different diseases that affect your ability to, you know, relate to the people around you, to remember things. There's a lot of depression and even anger in people who start having dementia issues. Uh, I think it was pretty well reported that Bruce Willis, I believe, has uh, Lewy body dementia, which is another another common form of it. And it's it's one of the most difficult things, I believe, for a caregiver to deal with, because in my reporting, these people forget who their loved ones are. And, you know, it, it just the difficulty of caring, you know, if, if an older man, for example, was caring for his wife, they were retired, she had Alzheimer's, you know, when she walks out the front door, he can't work, he can't look away, he can't even go grocery shopping. And then when the person being cared for does die, that's just another beginning for the caregiver because they all of a sudden don't have that full-time job. And maybe they want to go, you know, I interviewed a woman in her 40s when her parents had passed away and she wanted to get back into the workforce. Fortunately, she had been able to kind of keep a toe in. But, you know, if you spend 20 years of your life from 20 to 40 caring for parents with Alzheimer's or dementia, your life is not nearly over, but you've done no preparing for your own future. Paige, I understand that my saying what is dementia seems like a sort of a, a, a reductive question, but I think it's important to talk about understanding just what it means. Absolutely. And May, May was Mental Health Awareness Month, and June is actually Alzheimer's and Brain Health Awareness Month. So two months out of the year dedicated to sort of a recognition that this is something that affects so many people. And Ellen has done a tremendous job at uh, at being helpful and educating people. And again, what Mrs. Carter always wanted to do was educate. And whether it was through policy, as it, you know, Jennifer talked about, how to reach out and be a good caregiver or be a caregiver to a caregiver uh, and offering to bring food or, you know, not putting them in a position to tell you what they need, but to you know, be aggressive. The same thing went with Mrs. Carter. She was not exactly somebody who was used to speaking in public. And the fact that President Carter always pushed her out and said, this is your issue. It's important. She was the first person, the first first lady to testify. She was the first um, first lady to receive a WHO award for her work. That showing up at committee meetings, and again, not to get political, but the public can show up at meetings and actually advocate for these because it is, it's got to be it's got to be triangulated. You have to have press out there, broadcast journalists talking about these issues to destigmatize them, to educate a massive number of people. You have to get the policymakers, the advocacy to make sure that you're getting the right policies in place. And as Jennifer knows, it, it then it comes to how does this hit the ground? How, how do you make sure that caregivers who are dealing with people with mental health 
are getting the support that they need as well. So I think that this is, it has to be triangulated. And for that reason, this is why this is a great conversation to have with my colleagues, because each of us work in a slightly different area, but all towards the same goal. And dementia, as Ellen explained, is an umbrella, you know, it's not necessarily part of growing old. Memory loss is part of growing old, but dementia, it is a, it is a medical condition and it is something that is a, a crisis in America. And it's great that you're talking about it. Jennifer, Ellen gave us a little taste of it, but talk a bit more about the challenges that a caregiver has uh, in dealing with someone with dementia, Alzheimer's disease, whatever. I think one of the very challenges is where Ellen started, which is this is an umbrella term. Mm. So you're thinking about, you know, it's so many different experiences. Being a dementia caregiver can mean a number of different things. The disease progresses at various paces. So somebody's experience may be completely different than another caregiver. You could put three caregivers in a room for dementia care and they would tell you extremely different stories. Um, and there'd be a lot of emotion you know, as we talk about things like memory loss and some of those things bring up a lot of complexity um, and create this challenge of not having the person as a partner to make decisions anymore. And that's where I think dementia challenges become complicated. You can't talk it through with the person anymore. So um, I've dealt with some of that uh, myself and I can, and, and maybe the three of you have as well in your own personal lives. I don't I'm not asking you to talk about it, but I'll talk about mine, which is this um, awful experience of someone who completely forgets who you are. Uh, you have to reintroduce yourself over and over again. Um, a person, who, uh, in, in my case, who repeats over and over again, uh, same thing, says, here's what I'm doing today. Oh, by the way, here's what I'm doing today. Um, and I'm not a full-time caregiver. I'm just a visitor. Uh, so I can only imagine, I can only imagine, Jennifer, when you're dealing with this day in and day out, um, what it must be like. Oh, I can't remember if I took my meds today. Uh, yeah, I think I took, no, I don't think I took my meds today. To, to deal with this in, in a full-time way or, or much of the time, Jennifer, must be exhausting. I think it's exhausting. It's isolating because as the disease progresses, in some cases, family and friends don't want to come around because they don't want to see or experience some of what you're describing. Um, and I think there's a lot of kind of both emotional complexity and physical complexity, right? As a person's abilities change, uh, you're moving from maybe uh, putting food at their table to helping to feed them, right? Those, those types of things are, are complicated. All of it is a constant kind of wear on caregivers often. And most caregivers who reach out to us are in their crisis moment. You know, they're contacting the Institute at 2 a.m. because they have gotten to that point uh, of challenge, which is why our work at, at the policy level is so critical. We've got to support caregivers in an earlier stage, in a preventive mode, not wait for them to call us in their darkest hours. Uh, Ellen, get the last word in before the break. Yeah, I just wanted to say that, you know, you asked the Carter Center and, and Arcia how they're getting involved. I think that the way they're getting involved is, you know, the mental health journalism program. They're training journalists to go cover these local meetings. I think Mrs. Carter was very concerned with community. I mean, they, they are growing old in Plains where they were born. And her, her work is just so <laughs> important because, you know, at the, at the IRA, RCI, like Jennifer said, they're training people to to be caregivers, to find resources, to raise awareness. Maybe they'll have a journalism program in the future. But and then, you know, mental health. When when Mrs. Carter couldn't affect change necessarily in, in Hollywood, she sent out the journalists. That's that's our job. You know, we're supposed to go to these community meetings and we're supposed to report when there's when there's no local child psychiatrist or, or whatever. And I think that's that's what we're talking about. It's just the importance of her work everywhere she went. Uh, all right. I got to get to a final break of the show. We'll have more when we come back. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. 
NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Back with Jennifer Olson, CEO of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers in Americas, Georgia. Paige Alexander, CEO of the Carter Center, and Ellen Eldridge, GPB senior health reporter. Uh, before we say, we've only got a few minutes left, but I want to do something for all of you right now. Um, I want to play a little bit of Rosalind Carter talking about the whole issue of caregiving mental health that she cared so deeply about. There's a little music in the background because this was a produced video, but let's listen to what her own words are about this. I want my mental health work to to carry on, even after there is no more stigma, which I'm not sure will come in my lifetime, but but uh, I hope it will. But even after we don't have stigma to work on, there's always going to have to be a lobby to get the services that we need. And I think it will still be very important for the mental health community to come together the way they do now. We have a great opportunity to change things forever for everyone with mental illness. The solutions are truly within our reach. We can overcome stigma, and we can make services available to all who need them and offer every individual the chance to create a happy and fulfilling future. Paige, I think a good way to conclude our conversation with the time we do have left is to talk about the remarkable journey of Rosalind Carter and what an extraordinary person she is. Absolutely. you know, before Hillary Clinton, as first lady, took on took on health issues and healthcare, Betty Ford and Rosalind Carter were doing it. And this is an indication that these issues affect families everywhere. And Mrs. Carter's legacy, I mean, a lot of people have told us that how grateful they are that we made this family statement, that the family reached out and called it by its name. Because that is very difficult when people are still stigmatized. I mean, I've got I've got a friend who said that her father has Alzheimer's and her mother won't tell anyone because she's afraid that all of their friends will stop visiting them. And you know, doing this, this announcement was intended to say it's not a death wish. At the end of the day, this is sort of another phase in their life. And as Jennifer said, and then when the person passes away, it's another phase in the caregiver's life of having done the caregiving and now how to live without that caregiving. So without that caregiving role that they have. And so I think Mrs. Carter recognized that because as you started at the top of the show, talking about the 80 years that she has spent as a caregiver, and all of the people that she met on the campaign trail and all the mental health concerns, this was what she wanted to address in her lifetime. And this is what she's left with the mental health program and with the Rosalind Carter Caregiving Institute. Uh, Jennifer, the Institute is now more than three decades old. And once again, it's a tribute uh, to her for uh, sustaining it and, and frankly to people like you who have been part of it for for a while now. Yes, I mean, I think that 35 years ago when Mrs. Carter started the RCI, the word caregiver wasn't even commonly used. So I uh, think about today and maybe, you know, some of the outcomes of the pandemic have been that we talk about caregivers, the paid care workforce, the role and critical nature that uh, family members and friends and neighbors play. I think in all of that, I am reminded that we still have much work to do. You know, I would love to be in a situation as we think about Mrs. Carter's work going forward, where every political debate asks the candidates, what are you going to do for caregivers? What's your platform for caregivers from the mayor's office all the way up to the White House? Because that's the work that still needs to happen. Um, You know, that's what has to happen quicker than the next 35 years. Well, let me jump in on that. Um, you did have a, a, a breakthrough, uh, you and other organizations concerned about caregivers. Uh, President Biden signed an executive order on uh, a care for caregivers. If you can, we're running short of time, but very briefly, what did President Biden uh, do in that executive order? 
he pushed the federal agencies, uh, and this means not just Health and Human Services, but Department of Labor, Small Business Administration, all those parts of the government uh, to take 50, over 50 actions to support family caregivers, child care, the paid care workforce, you know, huge swaths of what care means. And so we're excited to see that going forward. Ellen? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw the executive order from the Biden administration at, as well, and just putting forward that caregivers need to be paid and, and daycare as well. I mean, daycare costs have gone up. I, I can't remember the percentage, but parents with kids are also caregivers. It's it's something we need to address as a nation. So, Paige, uh, I, I want to just mention a personal uh, story before we completely run out of time. But I like you like Jennifer um, and Ellen to a certain extent, probably, I felt incredibly fortunate that over the years I've gotten to spend time with President and Mrs. Carter. And the most recent time was quite was a few years ago. He had brought the entire family on a trip, a visit to Atlanta, and um, they came to Ebenezer Baptist Church for a Sunday service with uh, Reverend Warnock. And, and the reason I think about it now is um, President Carter was very lovely and came and said hello to me. And, and then he brought me over to see Mrs. Carter. And she was, at that point, even then, starting to struggle a, a little bit, I think, with her memory, if nothing else. And he was so lovely in the way that he talked to her and said, you remember Bill and what this and that. And, and the only reason I bring this up is because I got this very brief glimpse of two people who have always taken such wonderful care of each other. And as she struggles now, I can't help think of how lucky she is that he is there and still able to be something of a caregiver, if not the full-time one. Uh, They're both very lucky to have each other. And that has been a lifelong uh, love story that we continue to be pleased that they have this time together right now. So I love that story, Bill. Thanks for sharing. Lots of people have wonderful stories about Mrs. Carter. And I encourage you to go to the Carter Center website and leave those on the message board because the family is looking at it. And it's a nice way to talk about a story. Paige Alexander, Jennifer Olson, Ellen Eldridge, thank you so much. We're completely out of time. For me, this show, a tribute to uh, Mrs. Rosalind Carter. I hope you all feel the same way about it. That's it for us. We're back with a brand new show uh, next Monday. I hope everybody out there has a great weekend. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and please be good to one another. Bye. Bye.